This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Coach Donnie Dar, welcome to The Backdrop Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Matt. Look forward to it. Uh, same here. Um, it's, been, it's been a little while since we caught up, so how, how, how's Tina doing? How are the kids doing? How's the family? Yeah, it's been a long time since you see my kids. My triplets are 16 now, so they all have their own cars and driving everywhere. So uh, our life has just gotten a lot more chaotic and expensive over the last uh, couple months. But uh, everybody in my family is doing well. Everybody's healthy. Uh, So, yeah, we don't really have any complaints other than maybe we're all a little stir crazy and wanting to get out of the house and do a little bit more. To hear they're 16 with driving license that's yeah. crazy to me that's 15 years Donnie. that yeah. i yeah 15 years oh yeah wow um well there's uh it's it's an adi- a different year obviously um with not much golf happening right now uh this coming weekend though we have some golf to look forward to and i kind of wanted we to start do. i kind of want to start off with you with your uh, your cowboy alums who are the underdogs in this coming weekend's uh Skins game, I guess it is, at, down at Seminole. Uh, right. so, so we got, for those that are living on Mars, we got Rory McIlroy playing Dustin Johnson, or Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson taking on Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf. Uh, from a guy who's, who's coached and caddied for w- one of those duos, what, what are your predictions for the match? Well, I don't know about predictions, but you certainly know who I'm rooting for. Uh, I'm thinking it's going to be a great match and what a great opportunity for all of us golf fans to get to see Seminole, right? We've all wondered about it. Um, it's, it's a little bit like this story going on with the Chicago Bulls, right? You're getting to see things that you've always wondered about. Uh, I think we're going to get to see that, uh, with Seminole. Um, and it's going to be a neat environment. Just those guys laid back. I think, am I right? They're carrying their own clubs. I mean, it's like golf at it's wholesome, right? So uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I know that uh, Matt and Ricky are looking forward to the opportunity as underdogs, which um, I guess anytime you're playing Rory, you're probably an underdog, almost no matter who your partner is, right? Uh, So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch that. And certainly uh, four guys that kind of go about the game a little bit similar in some ways and then totally different in others. And uh, it should be a good match. I think the unspoken advantage for Matthew Wolf is it wasn't that long ago where he was carrying his own bag. All these other guys, yeah. they're not going to know what to do. They're going to think their shoulders are, are a little sore. Should they switch it up, you know, from time yeah. to time? He knows, he knows how to do it. Yeah, he ought to have it figured out. I wonder if any of those guys are going to roll out there with push carts like the college kids do nowadays. So it'll be interesting to see what, what happens. I sent uh, Matt a text the other day, and I said, hey, you know, if you need a carry bag, I could send an Oklahoma State carry bag down for you. But he, he thought maybe TaylorMade might provide him with a bag. And I said, wow, just to think, just because they're paying you a few million bucks, you think you need to show them loyalty? I mean, come on here. And, uh, so, so we're looking forward to, to watching that match. It's going to be a lot of fun. You, you, you mentioned how you know, each of these guys approach the game a little differently. Uh, from, from those two, from Fowler and, and Wolf, um, you know, haven't spent time with them as, as their coach in college and, and looping for them on the PGA Tour at different occasions. Uh, what do you think they share in common with their game? And, and what do you think is, is, is pretty different? Yeah, well, I think um, 
They're both really good ball strikers. Um, I think maybe the stats show Ricky hasn't hit it quite as well the last couple of years as he has, and he, and he's making some swing changes because of that. But, um, you know, they were both just, just real high performers. You know, they expected a lot out of themselves. Um, they could do things that their peers couldn't do, at least in college. Ricky, for one, he really could control his golf ball both directions. He could curve it either way. He would use the wind to his advantage, so he would draw it against the wind, cut it against the wind. Um, Matt played a little bit more straight of a ball flight, and where Matt kind of separated himself was he just hit it really good. He hit it long, but he hit it really solid compared to his peers. And so those two guys, both um, obviously high achievers, but those guys that are playing are higher achievers as well. And uh, the thing that'll be neat for me is uh, I, I caddied at the U.S. Open last year for Austin Eckroat, and uh, we played a nine-hole practice round one day with Rory, and we played a nine-hole practice round the other day with Dustin Johnson and Ricky. So I've seen both those guys up close, um, both of them incredibly generous with their time to a young player. I was really impressed by that. Uh, they both seem very genuine in trying to help Austin to uh, – Maybe just give him a little bit of support, a little bit of encouragement. Uh, it was really a cool thing to to see, and and I think uh, two things really stuck out that that uh, the viewers obviously maybe know a little bit about it, maybe don't. But um, the the one thing was Rory. The first couple holes, Rory hit driver, and and um, Austin hit his driver, and was and, and we were also with Victor that day. Alan Bratton was caddying for Victor Hovland. So it was the three of us and Victor and, and Austin, obviously I know their games really well hit, hit good drivers and, and Rory was maybe 10 yards past them, nothing major. Um, and I think they were both a little bit like, huh, what's all this talk about how long he is. And then we got to the ninth hole and the ninth hole was playing really long at the U S open at Pebble beach. And Rory made what appeared to be the exact same swing that he had made on the previous holes and this ball took off, and you were like, whoa, that was different. And uh, the two guys kind of, Victor and Matt, kind of looked at each other like, oh, man. And they both hit good drives when we got up there, and Rory was 30 past them. And they had only been maybe 10 yards behind him prior to that. So it was really cool to see these pros really have an extra gear. And it was really important, I think, for young players to learn that because so many young college players and amateurs, when they're hitting a seven iron or a driver, they're hitting it as far and as hard as they can every time. Where these tour pros are getting paid based on the ability to find their ball and have it be in the correct position, they're swinging way less than 100%. Um, so that was really cool to see. And then the other thing I thought was interesting, the next day we played with Dustin Johnson and Ricky. And... We're just kind of tooling around. We played the back nine, and we get in a hole, and Dustin hits it into a place that it's basically X in a, in a greenside bunker. And Austin's half-heartedly paying attention, and Dustin hits his bunker shot out, and it was just so-so. But as a golf fan, I was watching him like, that was a foot from being perfect. So he tells his brother, throw me another one. He's on a downhill lie, green running away from him, not much green to work with. And he lands the next one, that one foot away from being perfect, like I said, and it rolls to an inch. You could, a, a really good college player could hit a hundred bunker shots, 
and maybe do that one time. And I was trying to tell Austin, like, okay, you think of Dustin Johnson as a bomber and a ball striker and a guy that doesn't have a good short game. Did you see what he just did? And that whole day, that whole nine, Dustin kept throwing his ball into these spots that were you're just not going to get it up and down out of. And he just kept chipping it to a foot. And I'm like, holy smokes. I hope Austin is paying attention to this, which like most kids, he was half-heartedly paying attention, you know. Um, so it was neat for me to get to see that. So I think the fans this week are in for a real treat. Uh, you've got Ricky and Matt who kind of swing it a little funky. You got Rory who by picture swings it, uh, at least in my opinion, about as beautifully as you can swing a golf club. Uh, and then obviously Dustin Johnson has a wonderful swing and tons of power. So it's going to be a really neat thing to watch. And, uh, I'm not a real big golf watcher, but I'll be watching this weekend. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about Matthew's action, you know, what, what his swing looks like on, on film. And he's picking up a ton of fans, I think, because of that, you know, it, it's a, yeah. it's something, it's something the casual fan can attach to cause it's, it's different. Um, but what what does the casual fan not yet understand about Matthew Wolf? Well, I think how good a putter he is. You know, everybody talks about his length. Everybody talks about the the motion of the swing and the routing of the swing, if you will. But he's a wonderful putter. Um, and while he was at Oklahoma State, when when he first got here, you know, he was only here two years. He wasn't a very good chipper. Which you can kind of understand with that motion, the way it works to the outside. And, you know, there's he needs time. And he really became a lot better chipper. Alan Bratton, our head coach, worked a lot with Matt and worked really smart to where Matt didn't even know that, that, that Alan was adjusting his chipping and making him a better chipper. And just over time, he became a much, much better chipper. He's a pretty nice little wedge player as well. Um Alan, who I trust dearly, uh, talks about he's not positive. There's many players in the world that's a better pitching wedge player than Matt. Uh, now, you got to remember Matt's pitching wedge is around 150 yards. Uh, but, but he's a wonderful uh, little wedger for a young player. You know, not, I'm not putting him in there with Zach Johnson and, and Jim Furyk and some of those guys, but for a young guy that's only 21 years old, that's just learning, he, that 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 part of his game is totally overlooked. He, he does some pretty nice things there. And like I said, he's a much, much better putter than uh, probably what people would recognize. His bash brother, Victor Hovland, when they were together, I mean, they, they cleaned up every accolade in, in college golf. What, what was there a rivalry? I mean, I have to imagine there's gotta be some spirited pushing of each other. Like what did you witness between those two that, that seemed unique? Well, you know, it was really interesting because um, they, they both kind of came into themselves at, at a little bit different time. You know, Victor um, turned pro after his junior year. So Victor's sophomore year in the fall, he actually was struggling with his game. And um, finally, over Thanksgiving break, had taken a golf lesson. And that, that was, I've told people, that was the single best golf lesson that I've ever witnessed a before and after from. Um, Victor had been working with this guy and, um, and honestly, I didn't think it was going very well. They were doing things remotely and then Victor went and saw him. And when they were in person together, the communication was so much better that it clicked. And Victor, then that spring went off on a tear, which was Matt's freshman year. Um, both became first team all Americans 
And then Victor had a, a decent summer that he wasn't overly pleased with, then goes to the U.S. Amateur and wins, and then he's just off and rolling. Um, Matt, after that first-team All-American season, as a freshman, didn't play hardly at all in the summer, had a little bit of a, a hand-wrist injury, uh, had to kind of back off a little bit. Plus, Matt is a kid that was very underdeveloped. He hadn't played tons and tons of junior golf tournaments like some kids had. So that first year of college was pretty tiring to him. So he took a little break. Uh, and then, like I said, had that little hand injury. So then they both come back in the fall and holy cow, holy cow, we had arguably what they did that last year is arguably the two best seasons anybody's had in college golf in the last 20 years. If you look at some of the power ranking stuff, both on the same team at the same time. Uh, and it was really interesting that, I'm sure inside there was a push to try to beat each other, but you couldn't tell from the outside. They never talked about it. Uh, they never seemed jealous, which is probably a pretty good indication of why both of them are so good. They both have a big, strong confidence and belief in themselves that when somebody else has success, they're not going to get jealous of it. They're going to just recognize, while well, he played well and he's a good player, where your guys that maybe aren't quite as good uh, those guys are a little bit more apt to be jealous and, and to have that envy and want something where those two guys were both so good that it was just a matter of, well, who's going to win this week type of thing. Um, and we were fortunate that Victor missed a few of our college events um, for professional events. And so it was, a, it was a pretty fluid moving part where, geez, just every day we teed it up, we knew somebody was going to contend to win. And as a coach, that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Was the was that the seventeen eighteen season? That was um eighteen nineteen season. Eighteen So seventeen eighteen, Matt was a freshman, Victor was a sophomore. We had a wonderful year. We won the national championship at Carson Creek. That was the year they did the TV show Driven. Um so we had so much spotlight on our team. And then you go on and then oh wow, Victor wins a US amateur. Then you start to fall. Matt's winning every tournament we play. And kind of the uh, the intrigue with those two boys began to really grow. And um, I'm a believer that that TV show Driven was wonderful for both of them. Um, you got to see Matt's personality. You got to see um, the flair with his game. And then the U.S. Amateur and then the PJ Tour events the following year for Victor. You got to see Victor's personality and that smile. Uh, I think that really drove their market. Uh, I don't think that you're going to see two college players come out of school and gather the type of attention that those two guys did uh, anytime in the near future. Um, and, and maybe some of that w would be explained a little bit with Colin Marikawa. And you can argue that he's better than both those guys. Um, certainly he's a, a peer to them. And, there's nobody talks about Colin nearly as much as they do Matt and Victor. Um, and I think a lot of that is because Matt and Victor played at Oklahoma state. You had the TV show driven and that just blew their market up. And uh, what a wonderful thing for them and for our program, for sure. Yeah. That, that show did give, like you were saying kind of about the, the last dance on TV right now, you're, you get that behind the scenes, you get that, that feel as a former college golfer that has been in many uh, vans, not as bright and cheery as what your van <laughs> seemed like, Donnie. Um, what's it like being a part of that where, you know, it, 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 on one side, it's got to be so much success and, and happiness and joy kind of in those, 
in, in those trials or those travels together. But on the other side, you got to keep pushing. You can't be satisfied. Like, how, give us like uh, your take on on what that environment is like traveling. Well, um, yeah, that's an interesting take that you have because I've been on both sides of it, obviously. And if you coach long enough, you have you have plenty of sad sap stories. Uh, that's for sure. And um, but you know the the 17, 18 season, 18, 19 season were really, they were kind of a dream fairy tale scenario. Uh, like I said, we, we had a group full of guys that were competitive, that worked hard, that were really talented. And we won, I mean, nearly everywhere we went, we were winning or contending to win. And, and quite honestly, I if I could, if 10, I could go back 10 single and, titles and seven in a row, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I could go back and do it all again, you know, maybe you slow down a little bit and you enjoy it a little bit more. Um, kind of a funny story. We So that 2017-18 season was incredible. And, and it uh, all comes together with us hosting the national championship at Karsten Creek, our home golf course. And um, obviously the, the pressure and the intensity has probably never been higher on a college golf team. You had OU was the defending national champion. They had a great team. They were part of the show driven with us. Now we're this powerhouse team that is hosting the national championship, expected to win. Um, So you go through that whole deal. We win and uh, you do media, you do everything you do. We sat around for about an hour afterwards, just the group of us sitting there. We ate some, some together and then the kids went on their way to, to go sell, have a good time. And, Alan and I left and went to Stillwater Country Club to join up with our uh, and I ate with our families and, and some friends and we sat there for about two hours. I think uh, I, we laughed about it. I think we drank two beers each. We ate dinner. We went home and at 9 a.m. the next day we met to start working on our cowboy golf. And I, I look back on that with tremendous regret that we had all of this pressure and all of this expectation to do something and we did it. And we didn't really sit back and enjoy it. You know, we just got up the next morning like, well, this is just what we do. And we went to work. And uh, if we ever have that opportunity to have a team like that again and to win a national championship again, I'm going to make sure that we do a better job uh, making sure that we personally, just him and I, enjoy that. Uh, because to do to go through that, Alan and I are best of friends. And to go through something like that with one of your best friends and to have all the pressure and uh, then to go ahead and achieve your ultimate goal, I don't think we did ourselves justice in enjoying that moment. And uh, but man, it was it was awesome. And, and you asked, how do you keep guys motivated, inspired? Well, that year was really easy because although we did have an amazing team um, that everybody got to see, we had five to seven more guys sitting at home that at any given time was knocking on the door to be in that lineup. And, um, I share, we, we played a tournament, um, and I believe it was April. So just two months prior and OU was the defending national champion. Actually, oddly enough, Baylor at the time, I think was getting some rankings. They were ranked number one in a few polls. Um, and we played our starters and then we played our backups and our backups finished third in the tournament. You know, we won, the, the A-team, if you will, won. So I can't remember if it was that we beat Baylor or if we beat OU. But anyway, our backups beat one of those two. So I contend that that year 
although it was an amazing year, what was more special about it was I think we had two teams that were top five in the country. Uh, and it's a shame that not all those kids got to play and feel like they were as big a part of that national championship as what they really were. I think as they get older, they're going to recognize, wow, I was a part of something special. Even though I wasn't in the lineup, I made those guys that were in the lineup better. Um, Austin Ekro was a freshman on that team along with uh, Matt Wolf, and Austin was in and out of the lineup. In fact, he wasn't hard, he wasn't in the lineup at all in the fall. Um, and he was in and out of the lineup a little bit in the spring until late in the year. And then he established himself and at nationals finished top 15 as a freshman, won all three matches in match play. So, I mean, clearly he was the right guy to have in the lineup, but we had depth on that team that was, was something special. Your point on taking a moment to, to enjoy it you know, at the end and reflecting on it. Uh, it's very timely for now, right? Because we don't know how many opportunities we have to to be, do the things that we love, you know, compete on the golf course and and uh, chase those those dreams. Um, you you uh, right now with the team, the, the kind of the unit that was pr- this time of year. I mean, it's May. You guys have been going into Big Twelve conference championship. You'd be going to NCAA's. How, how how are things with with that squad? You know, maybe give give folks that don't follow uh, college golf as closely just a, a perspective on how impacted you know their their college golf career has been by all this yeah well I think it's really interesting uh, for Oklahoma State specifically th- this year was a, a bit of a trying year for us um, we're coming off of a two-year run that was arguably maybe the best two-year run in college golf history um, and uh we, we obviously lose some, some players to graduation, but we lost Victor and Matt. Um, you know, Victor should be a senior, Matt should be a junior. Uh, so we had a really young team this year. And quite honestly, we, we had to play some kids that we weren't counting on playing yet. We were counting on developing those kids. And then Matt and Victor, maybe Matt leaving a year early, Victor staying for all four. And then we would put those kids in the lineup. And so we had some kids get thrown to the fire. We we have uh, traditionally always played the, the toughest or one of the toughest schedules in college golf. So uh, this fall was tough for us. I think we finished the fall ranked about 50th in the country after being number one for basically two years. And so uh, it was a little bit of a trying time, but it was also incredibly rewarding because those kids came and they brought it every day. They worked hard. They were passionate. They got better in this spring we were really trending in the right direction. We had moved up to about 25th in the country, which if you did just a spring only ranking, I would think we were probably a top 10 or 15 team on a spring only ranking. So it was really cool to see them learn to believe in themselves, learn that if you work hard, you will get a reward, learn that, oh, I am good enough to compete at the highest level in college golf. Um, And I'm saddened for them that they didn't get that opportunity to do it at the conference regional and national to prove to themselves and maybe to the outsiders that had written us off when those guys graduated that, Hey, you know, we're, we're still here. We aren't going anywhere. Um, as it pertains to college golf in general, let's just take it a step further and just think about all the spring student athletes that were affected, your baseball, softball kids, uh, your golfers, your track kids. I mean, Holy cow. What, what a change that, that those kids have been faced with. And, um, you know, at Oklahoma State, we've made the commitment that any kid that was granted an additional year to their uh, athletic career, uh, like the NCAA did, we're, we're going to honor that. So 
we had a senior this year, Ferdinand Mueller, a boy from from uh, Germany, and he's going to come back and, uh, and enjoy an additional year, and hopefully we can do some special things, and he'll get to go out the way he should. But really weird time, that, and maybe the part that's the hardest is, you know, when they kind of took all the teams off the road in mid-March, and then you found out that, okay, this cancellation is for real, um, they also took away our ability as coaches to spend time with our players. Um, we still have five kids on campus uh, for one reason or another, um, a couple of them couldn't go home cause they're from countries where they couldn't reenter. Uh, and a couple of them felt like it was safer in Stillwater, Oklahoma than it was where they were from that, that the, uh, the virus was a little more rampant in their home location. So we had five kids stay here that we couldn't practice with every day and they're wanting, Hey coach, we come out and work with me. I'm sorry, we can't, you know? And so it's, that part's been really weird. Um, and it's been, uh, I don't know if troubling or concerning is the right word, but you see these kids and you start to see that eh, he doesn't look like himself right now. He's down in the dumps. He's a little depressed. And, and that's a big issue that I think, uh, obviously, this coronavirus is a big deal, but I don't think it's anywhere near as big a deal as the economic downfall that we're going to be faced with and the emotional crisis that's coming with this and, and how many people are uh, struggling with depression and turning uh, to the wrong things as their outlet uh, to help them cope with that. So I'm hoping that uh, this, this virus clears up quickly and we can get back to life as uh, all of us used to know it. And it's, it's going to look a lot different when we come out on the other side, but uh, we're a resilient country and I think uh, we'll bounce back and we'll be just fine. I'm glad you touched on the, the, the mental side of all this. You know, I think it, it does get lost a little bit in the headlines. I was talking to our mutual buddy, Kevin about that recently. And just, um, you know, he works with students as well and, yeah. and uh, he's noticed a change, you know, that you, you can only do so much uh, relationship building through these technology platforms like we're using today and uh, yeah, it's something we got to keep an eye on. Yeah, one one of the things I think's been hard for us a little bit, uh, and this is selfish from my own standpoint, but but as you know, I, I went through a cancer battle in the last year and um, had enough chemo and, and radiation that I actually still have a low white blood cell count, so I'm still a little susceptible to disease and illness. So I've had to be really careful. So when they first came out with this social distancing, you know borderline shelter in place, if you will, I really had to follow it pretty strictly. So even when I would see my, our players at the course, I was staying six feet away from everybody because I couldn't risk it. And um, I've always been a person that, that tries to build relationships and, and at least have some sort of rapport with my players to where they'll open up with me about things that are bothering them. And when you can't Spit, sit in a room together one-on-one -on -one and feel close to that person, it's hard for them to open up over a phone call or a text message. Uh, so it's been really hard, I think, uh, at least for me, to feel like I can communicate as effectively as I am used to. And I think moving forward, we're going to have to all reinvent ourselves in some capacity because I think, you know, are, are we going to even shake hands anymore? How, how are we going to do this? I think there's going to be a lot more Zoom meetings, a lot less in person. So we're going to have to, uh, those of us who are communicators and try to, to build relationships, we're going to have to find new creative ways to do that, uh, maybe at a distance, if you will, which is, is odd to me. But again, it's uh, your new normal and you figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, I, I, we just had some guys get together socially distanced rounds up in Wisconsin. And I got to say, 
I, I'm struggling with the, the lack of closure to a round of golf now. You know, we yeah. played awesome matches. Everything was real well contested. Everyone was super safe. But at the end, there's just nothing like shaking that guy's hand and saying, hey, that was fun. Thank you for that. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm, I, I, I've been struggling with that. I want to come up with something new that, that gives you at least a little bit of that closure. Right. Yeah, it's almost like you got to tip your hat like there's a gallery there or something down to your buddies. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's certainly weird. And um, I think it's odd when you see somebody you haven't seen in a long time or you are introduced to somebody new and and you want to shake their hand because, you know, that's the right thing to do. But you don't want to invade their space and they're doing the same. And you're both like nodding at each other like, oh, let, ah, what do we do? So, uh, like I said, I think it's just going to be something that takes a little bit of time, and I'm sure uh, we'll come up with a, a new way to do those things. So what, you, you touched on your, uh, your chemo treatments and your battle with cancer, and, and for me, Donnie, it's been one of the most inspirational stories um, of the last two years is, is your fight. And, and just, just knowing that you know, you've been a guy that, that has such great relationships with so many people in the golf world, and you support everybody. Um, the, I, I got to imagine the support you've been getting for these last few years has just been been a lot. Um, can you can you yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your 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 um, journey here and and how that has been? Yeah, sure. So um, a, a lot of people know it, but but some of your listeners might not. I was diagnosed uh, in December of two thousand and eighteen with colorectal cancer. It turned out for me, I had rectal cancer. Um, I was really fortunate because we had really good players on our team that was getting interviewed by agents at the time. Um, and we had agents in to visit Victor Hobland. Um, and one of those agents had been through cancer himself and treatment at MD Anderson, John Mascatello is his name. And, uh, just through conversation, I, I was diagnosed, um, at four o'clock the night before it's 9am the next morning and we're meeting with Victor and. I did what at least I think everybody should do when you get bad news is I just kept moving forward. So I was at work the next morning doing what I do and had this conversation with John Mascatel. First time I had met him, obviously we knew tons of mutual people and I shared kind of with them what, what was going on. It was two weeks before Christmas. And, uh, so he said, would you mind if I made a call to MD Anderson to try to help you? And I said, absolutely. So he calls MD Anderson and within three hours, I had a phone call from the lead doctor at MD Anderson in my area to set up appointments for me. So super lucky, uh, one that we had players as good as we did, but it just shows you how powerful the game of golf is and how connected people are with this wonderful game. Uh, so anyway, I was able to get to MD Anderson. I went down, had scans. They confirmed everything. Oddly enough, I had a golf ball sized tumor. Uh, stage three rectal cancer. So I moved to Houston for six weeks through January and February of 19. Um, did chemo and radiation there every day. Uh, then I came back to Stillwater. I think I was back for maybe nine weeks, I think is when I then had to go back to MD Anderson and have a big surgery. It was eight or nine hour surgery. They removed two thirds of my rectum and 18 inches of my colon. Um, pretty big, uh, surgery to recover from, but I was fortunate enough to, to push my way through that and got through it pretty well. Um, then through the summer of 19, I then had to do four rounds of chemo again. Um, those were rough. Uh, I, I would, I don't, uh, 
I don't uh, take that lightly. Anybody that's going through chemo, uh, man, th- there are my thoughts and prayers because it's a tough mental battle as well as physical. Uh, so then I, I wrapped up 19 with a surgery in November because when I had my surgery in April and they, they cut out uh, part of my rectum in, in the large intestine, they had to give me a temporary ostomy bag as well. So I had that for six months. So then mid-November, I went in, had uh, my ostomy reversed and uh, rehooked my plumbing back up, if you will, and uh, been been trying to heal ever since. And I was able, uh, fortunate enough to uh, still do my job through all of this. And, and you asked about the support through the golf community. It's been amazing. Um, you know, I've been in college golf basically since 1991 uh, when I went to Kent State, but I uh, had a few years there in the late 90s when I was working as a golf pro, but then I got back into coaching in 2001. So lots of the same people that I've known for a long, long time were reaching out to support me and and super fortunate. But the biggest support obviously came from my family and then this Oklahoma State family, the way they rallied around me, not just the players on the team, but our athletic department, uh, led obviously by our athletic director, Mike Holder, and then our head coach, Alan Bratton and then our players, the, the support that they gave me was uh, more, more than what someone could ever ask for. Um, and so I was super fortunate to, to have a work environment where they gave me the flexibility. I worked from home some. Uh, we bought iPads. When I was in Houston, I would FaceTime with the players when they practice some. Um, so I was able to stay connected even though I was away from home a little bit. And uh, like I said, I, I really believe that having those young college guys, having that team that was really good, having tournaments to look forward to each step. You know, for me, what I did is I just built little mini goals. And uh, the first one was when I did all my treatment um, at MD Anderson, as far as the chemo and radiation was, okay, I just want to get back so that I can start traveling with the team again. And I was able to get back and go to a couple tournaments and then I had to have surgery. So I had surgery right before the Big 12 championship. So I couldn't go to Big 12, but I had a really small window that if I could recover quick enough, I could go to regionals. And so that pushed me, and I was able to go to regionals and then nationals. And uh, like I said, I I was fortunate to rebound pretty quickly, and those guys were a big part of it. We played – obviously, we made match play at the national championship in 19, and uh, Texas beat us in the semifinals – but on that semifinal day, you play 36 holes. And on that day, I, I monitored it, but I walked 17 miles, 97 flights of steps, and that was six weeks after a nine-hour surgery. So uh, I was really fortunate to recover from all that quick enough to uh, get back in there and do what I love doing. And, uh, yeah, so, so the, last, uh, the last several uh, 18 months or, or whatever that adds up to be, 12 months of my life has been a little crazy, but um, – looking forward to moving forward now and, and just keep plugging away. When all that uh, was, cause you know, your team's doing great and it was in national media, obviously. And I got to uh, follow along through that while also just, you know, wishing you well, I know the guys that played for you on smaller scales, we, we all kind of just weren't surprised at all. We're like, Donnie's message has always been overcoming adversity. It's always about, you know, grit and pushing through and something you said before uh, earlier today was that, you know, you, you looked at statistics, right? And there's so many good and bad s- stats out there. But you were the whole time you're saying, well, that's not me and that's not my my plan. And it's, right. it's you know, tell us about like in those moments. I mean, you've, you've met 
the biggest of adversity, perhaps. Like, what is that mental state that you you have to get to for success? Well, um, you know, I think it's different for everybody. And what I shared with you earlier is that when I first found out I was diagnosed, friends would say, hey, I, I know this person that had this as well. You should talk to them. And so I did a little bit of that. Um, but what I found was when those people would share their journey with me, it would either create anxiety for me or I would think, oh, wow, this isn't going to be too bad. And then you go through it yourself and in the parts they thought were hard might not have been hard for me. And I'm like, man, I stressed over nothing. And then the parts they thought were easy are kicking my butt. And I'm like, man, what's wrong with me? And so what I found was for me, it was just better to, to run my own race, do my own thing. Um, obviously I welcomed those phone calls, but I didn't put as much weight into this is how I'm going to feel. Um, and then, yeah, you, you talk a little bit, I, I'm actually right now, uh, somewhat in isolation cause I, I had to self quarantine for two weeks because a week from today I go back to MD Anderson and this will be my one year checkup, um, for scans and everything since my surgery. And, people have asked me like, well, what are the success rates? And, and I've told them often, well, I don't really know what the success rates are. I know that if you have stage three uh, rectal cancer, that there's some grim news out there. And, uh, but for me, I, I chose not to read it because one, I'm fairly young for this type of cancer. And so to me, I think, well, yeah, a lot of people die of this, but a lot of people that get this are in their sixties and their seventies and might not have been as good a health as I'm in. So for me, I just took on the attitude that, well, they don't know what the statistics are because they don't have statistics on me and they don't know what I'm made up of and they don't know how willing I am to push or fight through this. And I've got a wonderful wife and four kids that every day I get up, I'm like, well, I'm not going to lose because I need to be here for them. And uh, so that pushes me every day to, to try to be my best. But but I'll be honest and, and maybe share this because maybe there's somebody that's going through this that's listening is that the hardest part for me has been since I had the reconnection or the resection surgery, um, trying to adjust to my new normal has been really hard, uh, much harder than any part of the surgery, the, the eight, nine hour surgery, the, the, the walk in 17 miles six weeks after that surgery. That was a piece of cake compared to what I've been going through now. And I don't know if it's the, the part of it is the emotional drag, but, uh, basically what I go through now is every day I wake up, I don't know what today's going to be. It could be a day where I don't go to the bathroom at all. And those are my favorite days, or it could be a day where I go to the bathroom 16, 17 times in one day, and I don't know when it's going to come on. And so, um, it's pretty mentally tiring doing that. Um, but, but again, what I found is doesn't do me a lot of good to complain about it. I just got to figure out how to get it done. And, uh, that doesn't mean I don't complain. I do to my poor wife. She has to listen to it. Uh, and I probably should stop doing that, but, but I have some days where I get pretty frustrated with it. But again, all I got to do is think about some of those people that are on the other end of the statistics. Uh, they wish they were as fortunate as I am. So I, uh, I'm just trying to, to kind of push through this each day and, I have a pretty strict diet that I've been following and uh, I've been pretty disciplined to follow that diet. Although since this uh, shutdown of working and people staying home, I've tried some different things that I've discovered do not work for me. 
but I've at least ventured out and tried some different diets and different foods that maybe I enjoy a little bit more and that I pay the price from it for a day or two. But, uh, yeah, it's just my new normal that I have to figure out. But, uh, but I've had an unbelievable support system, super, super lucky to have that. And, uh, like I said, just trying to get to the other side of it now. Yeah. Well, we're with you, man. It's, uh, like I said, it's an inspiring journey that you've been on the way that you've approached it. I, I want to tie it into a personal golf story if I can, for just the way you approach any challenge. You know, I, I didn't have the, I, I shouldn't say I played for you. I, I quit a team and I came back to a team that you were the coach of. Um, and so I got to be around you a lot and you probably don't even realize how important one small thing you did, um, was for me. You know, everybody, I, I left a team that was really mentally uh, broken. You know, they, they didn't have a lot going for them. And I came back to the same guys, same bodies who had so much self-belief and and knew who they were. And I didn't recognize them. I didn't recognize the team that you had literally transformed in six months time, seven months time. Um, and and I was inspired. I, I had not planned on coming back, but I really wanted to be a part of it, Donnie. And, uh, and I knew it was because of you, because you, I was trying to perfect something in a swing. You know, you let me hit balls and said, I have to earn my spot back on a team. But uh, I'm trying to perfect something to look like, you know, whatever tour pro I'm obsessing about making my swing look like. And and whatever the message was, you talked about your own imperfections in your golf swing and how every coach would have told you to get rid of those. And you had me guess which what it was. And it, it turned out there was like three things that you said were, were just so unique to you. And, and I think your message was you have to find your own path. You got to know who you are, you know, figure out who you are. Do you die it in the hole? Do you hit it firm? Do you, you know, do you like to see a draw? Well then hit a draw. And, and I'd never had anyone tell me that, that I just needed to embrace all these things instead of push them away. And, and it really changed my, my competitive golf after that. And I've just seen the message that you've shared with so many about what you're going through and it follows the exact same thing, with which is self-belief, uh, you know, believing in, in what you do, how you get it done, and and go do it. Yeah, I think um, I believe that even more uh, now, which is, would be what that's fourteen, fifteen years later, is that um, you got to figure out what works for you, and that goes with everything in life. But specifically, as we talk about golf, I mean. You need to know your own game and uh, you need to get good at what you do. And it really frustrates me when I see uh, a lot of kids working with swing instructors and the swing instructors trying to change what a player does. And I'm like, oh boy, that's really dangerous. Um, and I think as, as, you, as you look into that, one, one of the examples I would use would be somebody like Zach Johnson. If somebody would have took Zach Johnson and tried to turn him into a bomber 20 years ago, what would have happened to Zach Johnson? He'd be selling insurance in Iowa, right? You got to embrace who you are. He wasn't long, but he's competitive. He can wedge it. He can putt it. He's, he's I mean, that guy's not going to roll over. You're going to have to plow him under to beat him, right? And so I think it's really important that you have to recognize who you are as a player. And then you just got to play to your strengths. Um, I tell players that all the time. And, um, I think a lot of times young players don't really realize how simple that is. Um, our players, uh, two falls ago had a chance to, to play in a tournament that Brooks Kepka spoke at. 
And that's what he talked about. It's just figuring out what you do and get great at what you do. Um, and so for me, uh, that, that notion has just grown stronger and stronger the longer I've been around the game. I mean, can you imagine if somebody would have tried to change Ricky Fowler's swing when he was 15? We might not know who Ricky Fowler is. What if George Gank has tried to change Matt Wolf's swing? We wouldn't know who Matt Wolf is. So everybody has tendencies and things they do in their golf swing, probably because of physical limitations or physical strengths that we can't see. Uh, and that's why they swing the club the way they do. And then that produces a specific type of ball flight, whether it's a draw or a cut or whether you hit it high or low or short or long. That's who you are. Now, you can continue to try to get a little bit better at all of those things, but you better embrace that, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I'm glad to know that uh, that, that helped you. Um, you know, that's one of the things that's really interesting in coaching is that a lot of times you can see specifically where you helped somebody, and sometimes they still don't follow it. And you're like, oh, my gosh, how dumb is he? And then you have the exact opposite. You, you think – gosh, I'm not sure I helped him at all. And then years later you hear like, Hey, that really helped me. And you're like, Oh wow. Well, that's pretty rewarding. Um, so it's, uh, probably one of the things I love most about this game is just the impact that you can have on other people. Uh, and it, you can impact them in lots of different ways. And, and what I found through my time in coaching is that you can really help someone be a better player by doing less with their golf swing and more with, how they compete, how they practice, helping them believe more, uh, helping them analyze what they're good at, what they're not good at, build a plan to strengthen and weaken both those things. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty fun. And you've been around the block, you know, you've seen a lot of golfers, a lot of golf swings, a lot of kids. Um, I'm going to run through where you, where you've been real quick. Cause I had to remember I had this okay. morning. And I was yeah. like, "Where, where, wait, where was Donnie then?" Uh, but you, you graduate from Kent State uh, after an all-conference, four straight years uh, of of competitive college golf. Uh, you become the associate coach for both teams through '03, and then in '04, you went to Oklahoma uh, as Oklahoma as the assistant right. coach, right? Right. And then back to the University of Akron to help out the Bad News Bears, transform yeah. a end a nine year uh, winless streak uh, right. with with those guys, and and then you went back, and then you went to uh, Oklahoma State, and so right. I always I always love bragging about you to my buddies. It's like yeah, you know our, our coach is is down at the number one program in the country. Um, I don't tell him you're only with us for a year, but. Uh, yeah. But you head back there, and then you must have just had a bunch of embroidered shirts, and you didn't want to change the OSUs because you went to Ohio State to become the head men's golf coach there uh, for five years, and now you're back in at, at OSU. So do I have I have all that right? You have it all right. So, with the exception of yours truly, who was the best raw talent in all those years that you ever stumbled across? Oh wow. Um... You know, I get asked a lot who, you know, who's the best player and, um, and raw talent. I mean, Ricky's really good. Yeah. You know, he, he could do things. Um, he had confidence, he could putt, but he could do things with a golf ball that most kids couldn't do really could control his flight, really could control his curve. Um, 
And again, he's not very big, but yet he bombs it. So I, I would say that Ricky is, he's the best. Um, now we'll see, you know, we got a couple young guys that have just come out there with Victor and Matt that, that have a chance to uh, maybe do some special things. But, um, but to date, I would say Ricky uh, was the most, when you watch him, you're like, holy smokes, is he good? Uh, so he's the one that stands out the most for me. And in the Oklahoma State alumni, there is a long list. And, and anybody yeah. wants to wants to verify that, just do a quick Google search and you will see just tour pro after tour pro. And, and I was curious, the, the challenges of that, right, of maintaining the, one of the strongest uh, pipelines of recruits in college golf, um, contesting year after year for, for national championships, and developing players for the professional ranks. You know, I think if you compare it to other sports, right, I think a lot of people that follow basketball would say, well, there's schools that are good at one of those three. And, and uh, sometimes they overlap for a season or two, but you guys have been consistently doing that, um, those three buckets for, for years now. What, what, what do you think is the toughest of those three? Are they all kind of the same thing in your eyes, or does it really take an individual effort to, to achieve each? Yeah, I, um, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm not going to answer your question. So I, I'm going to say that they all kind of go together. But to me, ultimately, it, it all comes down to, to one thing, and that's people. You just have to have the right people in place. Um, you know, this started with Laburn Harris as the first head coach, and he coached Mike Holder and passed the reins over to Mike Holder. And then Mike Holder's the one that built what is the Oklahoma State golf dynasty. Um, and his leadership, obviously, I didn't play for him, but I've had the opportunity to be around him a lot. His leadership um, style is amazing on days when you think oh we just won a tournament he's going to be a great mood he comes in and just starts needling at you and then on days where you know what you need to be you know you need a pat on the back and you think oh no here he comes and he's going to get me today he gives you that pat on the back so an unbelievable motivator inspire pushing people um and I think he's done an amazing job. He transitioned in to be the athletic director, and he's done an amazing job of hiring great coaches. He had Mike McGraw, who was here, won the 2006 national championship. You can argue had the best team in the, in the country in 2009, 10, and 11. Um, eventually uh, had to make a coaching change and then hired, hired Alan Bratton, who played for Coach Holder here, was a four-time All-American, two-time first-team All-American, played the tour, um, played the, what is the, now the corn Ferry tour. I mean, he's the perfect guy to lead the program now. So I think when you, you look at the success of Oklahoma state, it all goes to the person that's been in the leadership position and the head coach. And we've been very fortunate that we've only had four head coaches and they've all been darn good. And, uh, they all have, a, a different leadership quality about them, but they're all wonderful at what they, what they have done here. I'm fortunate that I've been able to spend time with three of those four. Um, I was an assistant here under Coach McGraw, and Alan was an assistant at the same time. We split between both men's and women's golf, and uh, we talked a lot about, well, when Coach McGraw retires and Alan becomes a head coach, this is how we would do things. And so uh, that happened a little sooner than we thought probably, and, and to be able to come back now and work with Alan and 
do some of those things that we talked about and to see them work out, uh, see some of them not work out. It's been a lot of fun. Um, but for me, I think that the answer is quite simple. It's the people here. Um, now we have some advantages maybe that, that other places don't have. Um, we own our own golf course. Mike Holder raised the money, uh, build it with private funds and it's actually owned by the men's golf team. So we can do some things at our course. We can practice on the course. We can do things maybe that, that other schools can't because they're either a guest at their course or it's a university run golf course. Um, but probably the biggest advantage we have here that, that actually most coaches try to recruit against us is our weather. Um, we get wind here, we get cold here, we get sun here, we get a little bit of everything and golf's a game that's played outdoors and you need to learn how to play in all the environments. And, uh, we're really fortunate here to do that. And I really believe that learning to, if you can become the best player at Oklahoma state, then you're probably ready to head for the PGA tour soon after that. Um, it doesn't always transpire that way, but there's a long history here that our best players go on and do well on the PGA tour. And I believe it's because obviously the coaches that they played for prepared them for that, but also the, the weather conditions that you play in here, learning how to control your golf ball in the wind is a huge, huge advantage that very, very few people respect as much as they should. Um, so for me, I would say that, that those are the, the two things that have helped us the most is that, um, obviously the leadership and the head coaches, and then just the weather conditions that we play in day in and day out. Cause you can talk about Carson Creek. It's an amazing golf course, but we won a lot of national championships before they had Carson Creek. Um, and when I say we, I mean the, the, the coaches prior to me, but, um, I'm very fortunate, very blessed to be a small part of the history of this program. And it's, a an honor that I don't take lightly. And it's a big responsibility to make sure that you're working hard every day and trying to push the next players to, to be that next guy up that who's going to carry the torch and, and who's going to be our next guy to lead us to another championship. We, we have a fair number of, of listeners that are, uh, college golfers that uh, actually, um, many others that are kind of transitioning out of college golf and thinking about what they might might do next you know for for you being at at so many different levels in, in college golf you know you've been with with great teams at a, the mid-american conference level which you know outside of kent state probably not the top recruits uh then obviously oklahoma state top recruits in in the world um what what do you see from once they get to school and their performance levels what are the maybe a couple if you could pinpoint some differences you notice in the behaviors of the very the very best in college golf to those that are kind of you know talented obviously talented playing d1 college golf but uh residing in kind of the middle yeah the, i think most of those kids that are stuck in the middle are stuck in the middle because uh they probably just don't believe they're good enough to do it and um and then once they start to do it a little bit, they continue to wonder, am I really good enough to do it at the highest level? So then when they do get into that highest level opportunity, they don't have the, the belief that they needed. Um, and, and so maybe the way I could break that down is so if you take a kid from, let's just say, uh, the University of Akron, because we're both familiar with Akron, and you become the best player at the University of Akron. Well, if you're the best player at the University of Akron, that means you're a really nice college golfer. Um, but you need to wonder, am I good enough to play at the next level? 
Am I good enough to be a first team All American? Am I good enough to compete with the best players at the U.S. Amateur? Um, and the answer is, yeah, they are. But because they have to wonder if they are, there's that little bit of self-doubt that holds all of us back. Where if those kids from the University of Akron would have went to one of the premier programs, um, maybe not been in the starting lineup when they first started, worked their way into the lineup to then eventually by their senior year, they're one of the best players. Well, they don't have to wonder whether they're good enough to win a U.S. Amateur or whether they're good enough to, to turn pro and have a good chance to make it. They already know the answer. The answer is, well, if you can't beat the guys on your team, you're probably not good enough. But if you're the best player on your team, you're good enough. And um, Alan Bratton and I, we talk about that a lot because I was fortunate to play at Kent State for Herb. And I had a nice career. I won a few times. I was an All-American. And I told him, there's no doubt in my mind that if I would have played at Oklahoma State, I would have been a better player because a couple guys that were on their team at Oklahoma State, I went head-to-head with when I was in college. Um, and I think I'm pretty honest in this. Alan Bratton was better than me. Chris Tidlin was better than me. But those other guys, they were pretty equals to me. But because they were playing with Alan Bratton and Chris Tidlin at the time and would occasionally beat them, well, then they knew they were good enough, right? Where I wasn't playing with Alan Bratton and Chris Tidlin every day, so I didn't know if I could beat them. And that little bit of self-doubt would have, uh, in my opinion, held me back a little bit. So for me, I think that's the biggest thing that, that holds back kind of your average college player is he, he's wondering. And, and then if you take it a step further and you say, all right, well, let's talk about just an average college golfer that's a middle-of-the-road player on his team. He's the three-and-four man on his team. What's holding him back? One of the things that's probably holding him back is he's just not being honest not being honest with himself to where he's communicating openly with the coach to say, I need help with this because he's afraid to be vulnerable and admit to the coach, I need this. Not being honest with himself and that he knows deep down inside he's not working as hard as he could, but yet he says he wants to be good, but he's not quite doing it. Um, so I think that's one of the things that holds back just your, your kind of middle-of-the-road college player, um, and it's what holds back a lot of people. I think that that last distinction of um, being able to be vulnerable, admitting when you know you need help, and how that builds confidence, because I think I misinterpreted that when I was a college golfer to think, oh, I can beat anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the best, and I'm going to be the best. But then I didn't back it up with whatever my game needed. You know, Maybe it just needed me to take care of my homework so I could actually focus while out there, or maybe it needed me to, to hit the gym more often, or maybe it needed me to to practice more often, but I think I, I blur that line of like, there's um, delusional confidence of just telling yourself over and over again, which actually can sometimes work, but yeah. not, not consistently. And, and so it's about, you know, I, I, I really tell a lot of young players the same thing, Donnie. He's like, you got to be honest with yourself and you got to really reach out to those that um, can help. Yeah. I'm a huge believer that you have to self-evaluate and you have to do it honestly. Um, we talk about it a lot here, Alan and I, that the best players that we've had, they've been the most coachable because they've been so confident. They're not afraid to be vulnerable because they know if, if they tell us, hey, I'm kind of struggling with this, we're not going to go, hey, we might not want to take him to the tournament. He's struggling with his drive. Well, he's the best player. He's going to the tournament. 
where your guys that are on the back end of the bubble, they're afraid to tell you that because they're afraid you'll hold it against them. Where in all reality, as a head coach or an assistant coach, all you want is the players to tell you the truth so that you can help them. Because that's all we're trying to do, right? In, in this game, we're just trying to help people achieve more than what they think they're capable of. We're trying to get people to overachieve. And the only way you can get someone to overachieve is to build a relationship with them to where they feel confident to share and be vulnerable with you. Um, but it goes both ways. They have to be willing to do that as well. And so I, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was the head coach at the university or at uh, Ohio state, I, um, I, I was working with a player, uh, Alex Redfield, pretty talented player. And, um, his, I think it was my first year there, but it might have been my second, but I think it was, it was my first year there. I basically told him, you should quit. And, and he's like, what? And I'm like, you should just quit because you don't want it as bad as I want you to want it. And you're wasting your talent. And I'm not going to sit here and watch you waste your talent. So I'm going to be on your ass every day and you're going to hate it because I'm not going to let you cheat yourself. So you might as well just quit. And, um, man, he hated me for that. And I could see like, like flames were coming out of his eyes and he walked out, came back in the next day and said, I thought about what you said. I said, Oh, really? Thinking like, Oh boy, here we go. He's going to argue, you know? And he said, you're right. I'm going to change. And he changed. He worked so hard. Um, that was that was during the first year because then my second year there, Alex was a big part of us. That second year, um, we had a nice team. Bo Hogue was a senior, uh, Brad Smith and uh, Michael Crest, Dan Sharon, and Alex Redfield basically was that lineup. And I, I had moved Alex in and out a couple times. In hindsight, I shouldn't have, but maybe in hindsight, that's why he played better. But but anyway, that group of guys. Uh, made the national championship. It was oddly enough, 2011, the national championship was here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, made the national championship, finished sixth in the stroke play, so made match play. It was the best finish they'd had there in 27 years or something like that. Um, and Alex was a big part of that team's success. And so I look back on times like that, and, and it's just a really good reminder that people want to be successful, and you can't be afraid as a leader, whether you're running a company or, or whether you're a college golf coach, to have a confrontation with somebody and hold them to the standard that you know they're capable of, of performing at. Um, and I don't just mean in golf like the score you shoot. I'm talking about the work ethic and the effort that's put into what they're doing, how they're going about their craft. Uh, that was really rewarding for me. Uh, that was probably the most rewarding team I've ever been a part of um, because the previous year we missed regionals. My first year at Ohio State, we missed regionals. They were adjusting to me. I was adjusting to them. We had some unfortunate things happen throughout the course of the year. And then the next year, so we go from basically being ranked probably like 64th or something to finish sixth at the national championship, exact same players 12 months later. That's a pretty cool story. And so Alex was a huge part of that um, because the day I pushed him, he woke up and said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to waste it. And so then as our fifth man, he was way better than somebody else that would have been the fifth man. 
And had Alex not changed, he wouldn't even he wouldn't have been the fifth man. So uh, that was a fun one for me. There's a lot of guys I think out there, Diane, that have very similar stories that, you know, so many of us, majority of us don't go on to to play competitively after college. Right. And just what you're talking about applies to any other path that we take. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there is a moment I wanted to ask you about that came to mind uh, about last year at the 2019 NCAAs at Blessing uh, Blessings. I think it was a semifinal match. I can't remember exactly who you were walking with, but I want I wanted to ask you about this moment because it just made me laugh. It made me chuckle and just reminded me uh, exactly you know the kind of guy you are um, out on the golf course in particular. But it, it, I think it was Zach. Uh, yeah, it was Zach Boshu. Boshu, okay, and and he's got a big putt to extend the match. Um, I think it's to extend the match for birdie on a par three, maybe sixteen or seventeen. And and you guys are reading the putt. You can tell. I mean, he's looked at it four different times, and he is maybe overthinking, but you just know it's a big moment. I mean, the guy is 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 you know fighting for the team's life here. And and you look up into the sky, and you point you pointed at something, and you both start chuckling. Do you, what what happened there? Do you remember this at all? Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Um, <laughs> but but that putt was to put him one up, and he okay. made it. Yeah. Um, the, the moment that I thought you were going to ask me about, which a lot of people have called and asked me about. So the hole before that on 16, they both had hit it to the right. And I said, what are you thinking? And he, and he says, I'm just going to hit it through the tree. And I said, are you crazy? Well, the boom mic caught it up, caught it. That's and so I my remember phone this. starts blowing up. They're like, dude, that was so you like, really? You, you just called him out. Like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, what he was trying to do, he, he was going to hit the tree and it was going to fall straight down. It wasn't like it was a thin tree. It was a full bloomed tree. Like there was no going through it. And I just, I could see that if he just hit a low cut and it ran the way the terrain was, it, it was going to funnel his ball, not necessarily onto the green, but into a place where he could get it up and down. And um, he, he finally kind of agreed, like, oh, I see it. And he hits one of the best shots that I've seen hit under that kind of pressure, a trouble shot. And it runs right up on the green to, like, 20 feet. Are you kidding me? You know, and he makes that to tie the match. Then he makes it on 17 to go one up. And then on 18, he drives it perfect. And Stephen Sharoni, the kid he's playing from Texas, hits it left. Kind of gets lucky because it stays out of a bunker. Then Shervoni hits a really high quality shot. Zach hits a nice shot. And then uh, Steven makes a, about a 25 footer in pretty much the dark to tie the match. Um, awesome putt. Went in dead center. It was like a no brainer, right? Like you could see it going in. I'm on the other end of it. So it still makes my stomach sick to think about it. But you got to tip your cap like it was a beautifully struck shot. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. But um yeah, I don't remember what happened on seventeen, but sixteen I can remember like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah that I, I now that you say it, I do remember that moment and um, what great you know for college golf getting more into the televised world. The the drama is so good, and it's, I think it's partially things like this, right? It's kids carrying their own bag. You know, they they do make the same silly choices that we oftentimes make, and and there's only so many coaches to be around to help them out with those. But right. if if they could mic you up, I'd pay for the TV rights for that. For... Yeah, 
Yeah, there'd probably be too many beeps on it to mic me up. I have a tendency to say things I shouldn't say, but um, but it's been a lot of fun, you know, as a coach having the ability to walk with a player and be his caddy, so to speak. I mean, that's where your real bonds are made with players because you you help them do something they didn't know if they could do. You help them hit a shot they weren't sure that they could hit. You at some point help them not do something stupid that that keeps the momentum going for their round and they finish with a good round and and you can always see it in a guy's round when the round's over you know that that look of appreciation you helped me today uh so that's a lot of fun for me as a coach last question for you and then we'll let you let you go but uh we're both big admirers of our home state ohio um you're from the town of Coshocton, ohio who's the, who's the best athlete from Coshocton. Oh, wow. Um, well, I'm probably going to be biased here. Um, you know, I graduated with a kid named Andre Robinson. I can't remember exactly, but he won the state high school 400 meter three years in a row. And he finished, I think in the top three in the 200 and the 100, all of those years. So, he was pretty good. Um, we had Bob Brindley played in the major leagues. Mike McCullough played the PGA Tour. Um, so I, I don't know. But but I'll, I'll give you one that maybe one of the best raw talents, I think, might have been my younger brother. Um, really good athlete. Um, played basketball. But he was one of those guys that could do anything. Um, he played baseball and he was a fantastic hitter, played basketball. He really could score, uh, could jump out of the gym. Um, he was an awesome golfer, but he wouldn't play cause I play golf. Um, he was a decent, or I think had the potential to be a really good football player, but he wouldn't play football cause my dad played football. So he wanted to make his own path. So he chose basketball. So, uh, so I'm a little biased, but my brother was a pretty doggone good all around athlete, but, uh, but Andre Robinson, that dude could run, uh, <laughs> he could really go. So, uh, it's just, it's yeah. one of those, I just know it's one of those great small town Ohio where the competitive spirit is alive and well, if you're yeah. a golfer, if you're a junior golfer, you make a visit or I don't know if it's exactly in Coshocton, but you're definitely going through it to the MOGA. Yeah, the MOGA. It's in West Lafayette. Yeah. So uh, at Hickory Flats is a golf course. So, yeah. I hope that's still going strong because that was, I don't know where it fell on the calendar, but it was one of those rare, you know, mom and pop run uh, junior events. It's not AJGA associated or anything close to it, but the field was one of the best of the summer every single year. Yeah, they uh, it's it's actually an amateur event, but they get good juniors to play in it. They get good amateurs to play in it, and uh, you know I I think it's still going, but I haven't I haven't uh, actually asked in the last uh, couple years to see if it is or not. But uh, yeah, you know, and then you obviously have River Greens back there in Kishatan, which is a really good golf course, and uh, that's that's how I fell in love with the game. You know, there was just enough courses around that you, that, that you had access to it, and there wasn't a lot to do, so you just go to the golf course. <laughs> Good place to grow up. Yeah, exactly. Well, Donnie, thanks, man. I, I think yeah. uh, just having you on has been a real treat for me, being able to catch up. And like I said earlier, uh, I'm eternally grateful for the lessons that you you taught me in a short period of time. I didn't get as much time as many guys got with you um 
but you know just the resilience the uh the grit and the enjoyment of what you do it's it's contagious man and i think everybody um your comments on confidence really rang with me today because everybody i know that that spends time with you in a room or on a golf course they just they they find this this flair this confidence in them and um and that comes from you man well thanks i appreciate it i'm uh, fortunate to get to do something that uh it's called a job. I, I, I kind of kick myself every day that they pay me to do this, but uh, I'm lucky to get up every day and feel like what I'm doing isn't work. And there's a lot of people, especially right now, that uh, that aren't quite so fortunate. So I uh, certainly feel blessed to have to have had this long a career in, in, in a game that I just fell in love with as a 10-year-old kid, and somehow it's turned into a job. So I uh, appreciate you having me on, and it was great catching up with you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.